Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. I'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Wednesday, the 28th of February, coming up the passage to South Africa's first female Chief Justice. Growing concern over the future of public broadcasting. The impact of Sassel's decision to suspend supply of natural gas. Why South African beef is such a big hit in the Middle East. And rhino poaching is getting exponentially worse. You might recall that Sasol, South Africa's monopoly supplier of large-scale natural gas, announced in August 2023 that the supply of gas to industrial users would be suspended by June 2026. The unilateral decision says our first guest on the program to cut off the gas supply poses an existential threat to South Africa's manufacturing base. Yako Human, Industrial Gas Users Association of Southern Africa, a warm welcome to you. And remind me first, what was behind Sassol's decision in the first place? The lead up to this particular point, um, let's say over the last six or seven years, we were expecting that we're going to be subjected to a declining gas resource. Sassel took the decision last year around about August and it it announced that it will not be able to supply the South African market with gas. Now, that is a new position that Sassel has taken and, of course, an abrupt one in our view, which, which certainly set the cat amongst the pigeons with regards to gas energy security. Now, up to this point, we were all subjected to this declining resource where Sassel indicated that we will share proportionately in this decline in order to manage this and mitigate the overall risk. Also with regards to KZN, KwaZulu-Natal and and Pumalanga, it is a different type of gas. It's a byproduct of Sassel's processes. And uh, up to that point, Sassel assured us that the methane-rich gas will flow until there are viable alternatives in place. So that has also changed. So Sassel is pulling back on the methane-rich gas and, of course, the natural gas, which is subjected to this uh, declining resource. So we are exposed as an as a industry and, and the economy in South Africa. All right. You talk about uh, gas energy security. What do you then foresee as the immediate impact or consequence? The manufacturing sector, and it's really the primary manufacturing sector we refer to here. You know, you're talking steel, aluminium, the construction mining industry, aluminium all these types of uh, energy sources or industries are dependent on gas energy as a source. Now, now, along KZN, KwaZulu-Natal, if you take you know, cities like Durban, Mpangeni, Richards Bay, Newcastle, heavy industries, and also in Pumalanga and Gauteng, these industries employ 70,000 people, contribute significantly to the manufacturing sector to the extent of about 500 billion rand a year. And, and there are no feasible or discernible alternative for energy to run these plants. Uh, 
uh, at this particular point in time. And that is the, the biggest exposure that we face and the, the potential implication around all of this. So inevitably, we're going to become reliant on imports, I imagine, and that uh, becomes very onerous and expensive. We would have been reliant on imports in any event. The missing piece is the infrastructure to enable that. That is the key missing piece that we have. And LNG, which is the liquefied natural gas alternative, of course, is more expensive. You are quite right. And that is a cost that the South African economy will have to bear. The alternative, of course, of not having LNG is much worse, if I was just, as, as I've just indicated. But the, the infrastructure piece is the missing link. And uh, that is the focus to enable that right now. But that's going to take time. And again, there's a cost factor. Of course, there is a cost factor associated to that. So from a time perspective, um, we have about four months or so in order to commit to the developers. And the project we are focusing on is the uh, LNG import terminal at the port of Matola in uh, Maputo, Mozambique. This project is uh, the fittest project. It's shovel ready. The developers, it's a project backed by Total Energies have for a long time now looked at the feasibility, the pre-engineering, the, the, the contracting. It, it simply needs an investment decision. Then the project can flow. The other project in Richards Bay, uh, recently announced by Transnet in partnership with VOPAC, looking at an LNG terminal there, it's still in its infancy. Uh, there's no particular business case yet around this. It's dependent on various other power programs and power generation programs. So it'll take time to develop, and it's it's certainly unclear when that will happen. Mm-hmm. So once we've made this commitment in the next four months, financial investment decision can be reached. And, of course, the developers and the investors in the infrastructure can move along. We are looking at a construction period of about two and a half years, which will then bring us to uh, the beginning of 27. And we already have this overlap, as you can see, uh, in terms of gas energy security and the gap. So, But in order to reach this financial investment decision, we need some commitment from government in terms of its future offtake of gas backed by the power program that is being envisaged by government. And has there been been any word from government and particularly on how it might uh, plan in mitigating the risks that you've outlined? No, the plans that we've outlined are not new. We have been in discussion about, you know, with government on these plans for basically six years now. And uh, these plans, like I say, have, haven't changed. They, they, they are still deemed to be the solution. But now, of course, it's real. The, the issue is not about one day anymore. It is now here. And we are looking towards government to say, but, you know, industry has about 50 petajoules of gas that it can bring to the table through a particular mechanism. Government, you know, we're asking you to also make a commitment in order to build out this volume pot. The moment you have the volume, it becomes efficient from an infrastructure perspective. It becomes feasible from an investment and development perspective. And um, we're looking to partner with government around this. But we don't see the plans yet around this or, or the clarity that is required. 16 weeks is a very tight time frame. Jaco Human, thank you very much indeed for joining me from the Industrial Gas Users Association of Southern Africa. You're listening to Web at Midday. 
There is increasing concern over the future of public broadcasting in South Africa after Parliament's decision to press ahead with the SABC bill without any public hearings. I'm joined now by Justine Limpetlaw from the SOS Support Public Broadcasting Coalition. Justine, a very warm welcome to you. What is your principal concern over this issue? Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So the SABC bill is extremely controversial. It's being done at breakneck speed in the absence of proper public broadcasting policy development. Their changes are very worrying. And um, 17 separate submissions on the bill, written submissions on the bill, were received by Parliament. Two days of hearings were scheduled for last week. Within an hour of the president announcing the election date, the public hearings were abruptly cancelled. And on Monday morning, we get an updated schedule for the committee. They're pressing ahead with discussions on the SABC bill, including a final session that talks about finalising the bill and no provision is made for Mm. public participation. So a lot of so, a lot of prevarication as far as that is concerned. Justine, remind us please what this bill seeks to achieve and how it threatens the future of public broadcasting. Well, the problem is that we, we all know that the SABC has been in crisis for a number of years because it's got a very significant public mandate that is effectively unfunded. Government funding amounts, direct funding amounts only to only 2 or 3% of the budget. Um, it's massively, massively reliant on advertising. Up to 80% of um, its, its income is advertising. And there's just a total mismatch with a um, commercial um, finance model on the back of a very significant public mandate. So it's massively underfunded. And the problem is that the bill doesn't address the funding at all. It keeps in place all of the things that haven't worked, like the divisionalization of the SABC into public services and public commercial services, the broken cross-subsidization model that doesn't work because SABC3, for example, which is a public commercial station, um, earns less than SABC1, which is a public station. And this has long been recognized by the department, but they want to push through a bill that they have already said in draft policy statements, you know, um, the provisions don't work. They haven't worked for over 20, over a quarter of a century now. Um, But two new things about the bill are extremely worrying. The first is that they are taking back the editorial industry the editorial function, the editor-in-chief is no longer going to be the executive in charge of news and current affairs. Instead, the editor-in-chief goes back to being the CEO, as it was during the cloudy era with all of the political uh, shenanigans that characterized that. Uh, It's really dangerous Mm. when you put, frankly, the non-editorial people in charge of editorial. Right. So, and Justine, what is what is your what is your suspicion then, or your belief around this need to push this through without any public consultation? Uh, the elections, quite simply, 
And, and, and uh, Jeremy, if I may, just one other thing about the bill that I think is really important that your audience understands is that um, the commercial uh, subsidiary company that they're proposing to set up of the SABC to run the public commercial channels, the minister is to have a veto over every single board appointment that flies in the face of high court judgments that talk about the need to protect the editorial and, and general independence of the of the SABC. I think that this I think that the ruling party is very worried about the kind of election coverage that they're going to get. I think they want to control it on the largest media outlet in the country. And I think that that's why this is being pushed through. I suspect this is being pushed through in this in this term. So but are they I, adjusting any rights of recourse here? For instance, your organization, where would you now be taking this particular issue? To the courts. But I have to say that there has been just yesterday a huge amount of backpedaling by the uh, Parliamentary Portfolio Committee saying, no, 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 there's no... Uh, that 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 uh, reference to finalising the bill was an error, but then he refused to correct it when asked by other members of the committee. And he said, we definitely won't go ahead without public hearings. And in fact, the hearings were cancelled because we're taking legal advice on whether the SABC bill can proceed in its current form. Now, none of that was given as reasons when the public hearings were cancelled. So I suspect that what might be happening is backpedalling and a realisation that Parliament could really go badly wrong on this issue. So I'm hoping that Parliament's legal advisors don't just say this bill is um, fatally flawed, it's unconstitutional in a number of respects. We have to listen to the representations, which included not just our organisation, but also CASA. And the SBC itself um, saying, look, there are real problems mm. here and you can't proceed. All right, really does sound like a mess. Uh, Justine Limbertall, thank you very much indeed from the SOS Support Public Broadcasting Coalition. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. South Africa looks set to get its first female chief justice when the term of the incumbent Raymond Zondo ends in the next six months. In a statement released overnight, the presidency announcing that the deputy chief justice Mandisa Maya would be President Ramaphosa's nomination to succeed Chief Justice Zondo. Some analysis now as I'm joined by Lawson Naidu from the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. Lawson, welcome to you. How significant is the nomination then of the deputy chief justice, particularly as the first female. Uh, good afternoon, Jeremy. Thank you. Um, yes, it's, you know, it's likely to be an historic occasion if the nomination of uh, Justice Mandisa Maya uh, uh, is approved, uh, uh, f- formally approved uh, in the end, and that she is appointed as the next Chief Justice when the current Chief Justice, Raymond Zondo, uh, retires in a few months' time. Uh, it, it would be an, a historic occasion and, you know, mark a, a, a remarkable rise in her career uh, at the uh, uh, at the bench, having served as president previously of the Supreme Court of Appeal and having been appointed as the deputy chief justice uh, by President Ramaphosa last year. 
Lawson, let's talk about the passage to that appointment. Given the president's broad discretion in appointing the chief justice, uh, despite the consultation process, how would you assess the balance then between executive prerogative on the one hand and then democratic inclusivity as far as this appointment is concerned? Are you satisfied that those prescripts would be met? Well, I think, you know, what what has to be noted, Jeremy, is the uh, reversion to the previous practice uh, by, by presidents. Uh, to not to you know take it upon themselves to nominate a preferred candidate for the role of chief chief justice, which is fully in accordance with the constitutional provisions. Uh, however, it must be noted that the last time around, when um, uh, uh, the current chief justice Zonda was appointed last year, that was preceded uh, by a, 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 a more consultative process where the president. Uh, set up an independent panel uh, chaired uh, by uh, Justice Di- uh, Di- Judge Dyer Pillay uh, to invite uh, nominations and to screen those candidates before submitting a report to the president. Uh, the president has dispensed with that uh, process now, and I think there was much to be said for it in that it was a sort of more open, competitive process and really uh, enabled uh, you know, the, the, the best candidates to, to, to come forward. Uh, you know, on the basis of that, uh, the president then forwarded uh, four names to the JSC. Four candidates were uh, were interviewed by the JSC, and uh, you know, rather controversially at the time, the JSC took it took it upon itself uh, to recommend a preferred candidate, which was in fact uh, uh, Justice Meyer. Um, uh, uh, but the president, uh, you know, uh, overlooked that and proceeded to appoint uh, uh, then Deputy Chief Justice Ondo. Given the robust nature of that process and also previous chaotic scenes, I remember for the Chief Justice uh, Mohueng Mohueng. Lawson, how do you evaluate then the JSE's role and effectiveness? What needs to change, if anything? Well, I think there are two aspects of, of this, Jeremy. Firstly, you know, the president is obliged to consult with the JSC as, w- as well as with the, the leaders of political parties represented in the National Assembly before making uh, the appointment of the Chief Justice. He, he, must, he consults with them, but he's not bound by the input that he receives from them. Uh, but I think on the broader question that you raise about the you know, effectiveness uh, and efficiency of the JSC, I think that we still have a long way to go. We saw, for example, recently a matter that is being contested at the moment, the interviews that were conducted for the vacancies at the Supreme Court of Appeal late last year. Uh, so I think the JSC has a long way to go to uh, to put in place uh, proper me- mechanisms to ensure that there is objectivity in the interviewing of, of candidates, that there's fairness towards the candidates that appear before them. Uh, and I think uh, we still have some way to go in, 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 in getting that right. Are you confident that objectivity and fairness will be applied this time around once it gets to that, once it gets to that place? <clears throat> Well, one one would certainly hope so, and you know, would hope that the JSC has learned from uh, the many mistakes it's made in re- in recent years that uh, you know uh, resulted in in litigation, you know, by Cassac back in 2021, and and currently by uh, Freedom Under Law, as I said, in relation to those uh, SEA interviews that were conducted last year. So I think there's there's a lot for the JSC to ponder as to how it needs to improve its processes, to uh, to ensure that there is objective criteria uh, 
that is used in the interviewing of, of candidates, but also that those criteria are actually used to evaluate the candidates after the uh, interviews are done in the closed session of the JSC. And what uh, was revealed from the record of the closed deliberations uh, last year was that that uh, those criteria, you know, went out of the window, uh, and it was a very subjective. Uh, approach uh, with uh, new issues being raised in respect of some of the candidates in the closed session, uh, issues that had not been put to the candidates and therefore uh, rendering the process, you know, unfair. And very quickly, do you think she'll get the job? I think she will. And, uh, you know, I think it it will, as I said earlier, it will be a um, well-deserved promotion for her. But I think, you know, the process uh, could be uh, uh, could be better if it is an open competitive process, as we saw four years ago, despite the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, the JSC bungled those interviews of those four candidates. Uh, but it, it would, be, you know, would be hoped that uh, such mistakes do not happen again. Lawson Naidu, thank you very much. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. South Africa's battle to defeat rhino poaching has taken a turn for the worst, with the numbers killed in 2023 rising. Last year, 499 rhinos were hunted, an increase of 51 from the previous year. That's according to new data from the Environment Minister, Barbara Creasy. I'm going to talk now to Joe Padima, who's the executive for Biodiversity Esemvelo, and uh, as I say, with me to respond. And Joe, first of all then, what do you believe are the primary factors driving this resurgence, particularly after a period of decline? The resurgence is driven by a multiplicity of of things. I think firstly is the fact that there's just simply a a national displacement of uh, rhino syndicates from Kruger to KZN and elsewhere where they feel the heat has been lessened in in terms of the effort on curbing anti-poaching. So, so that's just the one major thing, firstly. And I know that we repeated this last year when the minister issued a statement about the, the statistics. But that's just one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is the fact that you have a situation in South Africa generally where the socioeconomic condition of the general population has declined significantly and you've got people migrating back from uh, Joburg, which is where they previously went to seek jobs, mm. back into rural areas where they re-established themselves because they've been shared off from their jobs. They, they are unemployed, they organize, and they become vulnerable to syndicates within our around protected areas. Could you explain to me what you mean when they say they become vulnerable to syndicates? So what happens is that what syndicates do is that they use people adjacent to protected areas, households, to try and get information about what goes on within protected areas, driving people, normally communities that are vulnerable, that are poor, and bribing them, firstly, to provide information, secondly, to, uh, so that they can be habit within those homesteads, because normally... What uh, poachers do is that they'll stay in the area for a while, scouting the situation, sometimes even breaking through the fences Mm. and staying inside the park before they actually start killing animals. So, Joe, what I'm hearing you say is that these syndicates are not only better organized, but they're now working with better intelligence. Oh, very well. Remember, rhino poaching is actually uh, an organized crime. 
it's not people who are just randomly, you know, trying to use opportunities of maybe the porosity of the fence or whatever the case may be about the, the poor security system to, to try to get in. They organize. They take years. These are people who also deal with counterbands and other international crime. And so they're very organized. Joe, do you think we are losing the fight against this crime? I would not say so. What I'm about to tell you is something that we'd not like saying much because it may give people an impression that, no, the world is not coming to an end with rhinos. But actually, the productivity level of rhinos in protected areas is actually stable. Even as we are facing the hammering of rhinos excessively. For instance, if you look at statistics in 2022, we are experiencing a rhino recruitment of about 5 to 6%. But what then happens is that the rate at which we lose in rhino offsets that. Whereas we should be having a bigger number of rhinos growing, the poaching eats into the productivity of the rhinos that we see in protected areas. I don't know if I'm making sense. You're, you're making perfect sense. You also yes. reference uh, the, the the migration of these syndicates. So if you have these criminal groups that are now moving their focus from Kruger to Hlhlui Mfolozi, are there new strategies that either need to be adopted or are already being adopted? There are new strategies that we adopted. So we normally talk about an anti-poaching toolbox strategy that we are applying. And what is happening is that what we're doing now, we're using a multiplicity of these tactics based on what we think may be driving poaching at that particular time. For instance, I mean, we could use the amount of high-tech we deploy, the use of you know helicopters, the night vigil. Uh, we are now exploring having a radar system so that you are able to stop them before they even come into the park. So a rider system, what it does is that it senses people's motion and it can be so explicit as to pick up somebody from a distance before they come inside mm. the park. So we're deploying that. We are looking at the smart fencing. We've already erected about nine kilometers of smart fencing on the side where we are experiencing a heat of rhino poaching. And the minister has now given us an additional 40 million to extend the size of smart fence that we erect. Right. By smart fence, we're talking about a fence that's able to trigger when somebody um, compromised the fence and we're able to react to it. But also, you know, there are other issues because if you look at in other areas, what we've learned is that often when poaching happens, 60, 70% of it is attributed to inside information leaking out from your own staff. So one of the things that we're looking at now is to now implement what we call integrity testing. And we have uh, polygraphy testing being rolled out so that when people patrol, you trust your own colleagues in a patrol. You, you don't want a situation where you are walking into an ambush and one of yourselves is compromising right. the security of what you're walking into. So we're looking at a number of issues, right. but we think that... We will make a turnaround sooner. Just that this business is very expensive. It's very costly. And as you know, government is not doing well with the funds. But Precisely. we are in partnership yeah. with a number of people to do that. All right, Joe Padima, thank you very much indeed for that uh, very comprehensive response. I do appreciate it. Uh, executive for Biodiversity, Ezemvelo. Money Web at Midday. For all your up-to-date stories.
And finishing our program with this story today, South African beef is now available on the shelves of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's after a landmark agreement between this country and the Kingdom was signed. I'm going to talk now to Gert Blachnot, Chief Executive Officer of the Beefmaster Group, with a view on what this means for the beef and agricultural industries in South Africa. Gert, how significant then is the impact of exporting beef to Saudi Arabia? Well, afternoon, um, Jeremy, and afternoon all the listeners, and thank you for having me. Well, um, significantly, I would say that uh, the South African beef industry needs needs a kicker to get going again. We're in the slums of the economic situation at the moment in South Africa. And to grow the business or to grow the industry, we need more markets. And uh, for the likes of, if you look at the likes of Australia, that is exporting about 70% of their product and uh, the Brazilians that is ex- exporting about 30% of their product, South Africa is only at four um, uh, percent, and all, both of those con- both of those countries has uh, thriving beef businesses that is contributing a lot of uh, foreign currency into the economies, and I cannot see why that's not possible for South Africa. So, Gert, um, in order to achieve a target of maybe seven or eight percent, which I believe is is what you're chasing, um, what other markets then would the industry need to target for expansion? Yeah, well, in my opinion, is that um, if we if we do this right with Saudi and uh, with with the kingdom, I think this the, the Saudi Arabian Arabian market on its own could could increase our presentation to about three to four percent. That will only mean that we need to export in the vicinity of about eighteen thousand tons a year, uh, and I think that's possible. That's achievable in a twelve month period, looking at the capacity uh, of of most of the businesses that were approved for. For, for Saudi Arabia. Gert, considering the competitive global beef market that you've just outlined to me, Australia and, and, and Brazil, what then distinguishes South African beef? What gives us the, the, the edge? Well, for this reason specifically, we saw over the past, let's say, eight years that we've been doing business in that region is that every time we enter that market, those guys are already there. But... They keep on bringing our product onto their shelves, and I would suppose it's because of the quality. For sure, there's a different different quality. From Brazil, it's more grass. From Australia, it's more older and more fattier. And from, from our side, a more leaner, younger, and a more tender uh, piece of meat. And I think that that region loves this meat as much as we do. Um, <clears throat> and then the other factor that I would think is, not think, I believe it is, it, it is the case, is the fact that... Um, the transit times from South Africa to this region is much shorter than the transit times from those other countries. So I think looking at food security for that region and our Saudi Arabia included, I think South Africa is sought after uh, and, and it could be a, big, a very good and big partner for them on, on, on in, that, in that circumstance. Notwithstanding, of course, the logistical difficulties, uh, we've seen conflict in the Middle East, and your job, I guess, the industry's job, is to ensure timely and cost-effective delivery of product. That is being complicated, surely, by the current situation. Well, it is complicated, but it's even more complicated for those countries because they are already further away from the market. So these complications is even adding more days to the transshipment. So even though it is complicated, there is options of, let's say, entering from from uh, from another side from the Middle East into uh, into Saudi, for example, or for the likes of Dubai that's already on that side. The big problem is in the Red Sea. So every shipment that passes the Red Sea that would 
grow upwards maybe for the likes of Jordan or to Europe or from that side if Brazil is sending it in. That is more complicated. So it is, it's not easy, but still throughout all of these difficulties, we still manage. Uh, we as a country are still managing getting product into that country in those countries and it's and it's helping them and it's helping us thank you very much indeed chief executive officer of the beef master group and just before i leave you let me uh, return to our tuesday online poll i asked you if uh, there was any new load shedding optimism in south africa Uh, the options were improving rhetoric or don't touch me on my inverter and half our respondents saying all of this uh, the bullish attitude is pure government rhetoric Um, on today's poll south africa's rhino poaching crisis we've just uh, had an interview on that i'm asking you if you think uh, the problem is exacerbated by poor law enforcement corrupt officials or lack of community awareness if you have a view on that and i'm sure that you do I would invite you to go to MoneyWeb either on X or also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon every weekday, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.